This week on the Twin Geek Cast, we have a load of Disney news from Spider-Man to Star Wars. We'll also be highlighting Mindhunter and revising our box office process. Calvin and I will also be highlighting Curtis Hansen's 1997 neo-noir drama, L.A. Confidential, starring Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, and Guy Pearce. This week you've heard it from us, off the record, on the QT, and very, very hush-hush. I was going to say, that one of the big things I wanted to mention, uh, that I was waiting to mention this week uh, while we were in the podcast session, is that I am actually, in retrospect, glad we didn't talk about Dark Crystal this week, because it was a piece of shit. Oh, yeah, you didn't like it either. <laughs> no, I like I didn't like it at all. I, I, was, I didn't think you would. I, I was very confused that you brought it up. I was like, this has no elements David will really grasp on. Why not? I mean, we, we both like Labyrinth a lot. Like, I'm like, hey, it's, yeah. it's you know, Henson, like, just, just before Labyrinth, you got, like, a lot of similar people in here. You got Frank Oz as a co-director. He did my one of my favorite films. He did Little Shop of Horrors. Like, it's a Muppet movie. Why shouldn't I like this? And I'm like, oh. oh. <laughs> I think when you strip away the Bowie and the human layer that's really fun about Labyrinth, you kind of lose something in there. I think the biggest problem I had with Dark Crystal is just that the I don't know. I was I was shocked by this because for a company that's so famous for their intricate designs and amazing effects work and you know facial articulations, the main like was it Gelflings they're called? They're just pieces of wood. They just look like the marionettes they are. And that's uh, the same feeling I had about Jackie Chan, but I don't think we need to do a police <laughs> story either, right? Yeah, that was uh, a thing. <laughs> I'm not trying to create some kind of tension in the podcast here, so and that's okay. Again, it's it's okay to not like it. You can not like Jackie Chan all you want. Uh, we should start in on some Star Wars news. Holy shit, we have a lot of Star Wars news. Yeah, yeah, that's something that's a uh, major here. I, I literally just caught up with it. Um, I don't know uh, which one do you want to start with. <laughs> I'm most hyped about Mandalorian. Yeah, I I think that one, having just watched both the trailers, looked. Uh, but a b- bit more interesting to me, maybe it's a bit of the actual like trilogy fatigue as well that's kind of playing into that. But Mandalorian, mm-hmm. like my first thought with it, I'm like, ah, this looks like the gritty kind of down-to-earth action film that Rogue One was supposed to be. Yeah, it seems like it gets the parts of Rogue One that really worked, um, and that it's more personal, because when you're like closing out a trilogy, you kind of have to do a commentary on everything that came before by necessity. So I think it's really good that they're able to kind of you know, weaponize Abrams into a, like a more personal like showrunner. Mm-hmm. Is he also running the Mandalorian? I believe so. Um... That's the first. I don't know. I haven't heard as much about it because it was originally. I was like, oh, I don't know. You know, Boba Fett series. If that's what it is, even still, like it didn't necessarily appeal to me too much. Also, just like too much Star Wars television in general. I haven't really kept up with the Clone Wars or any of that stuff going on. Sorry, it's a Favreau that's running it. Oh, so, that's uh, right. That's right. I remember that now. He's... So very dependable for uh, Disney, because I guess he started all their major franchises now. So. Well, he did. He started Iron Man, and he kind of kicked off and made the impact with the uh, the reboots as well, the um, the live-action reboots with Jungle Book. That was, like, the first major one. Was it, was it? No, I think Cinderella was the first one, but his was, like, the one that broke the mold. Yeah, his is the one that, like, set up what's really working right now right and then the, like lion king this summer the biggest uh, movie of the summer but we're not going to talk about that yeah no 
and then now he's launching off Disney Plus with this major thing. It just seems like uh, it's kind of incredible that that Favreau has risen to the heights of Disney reliability. Yeah, he has, and uh, I mean everything from you know like Avengers, of course, their biggest property, and Iron Man to well, uh, starting off their. Uh, biggest show for this new service oh it's kind of funny because even though he did technically launch the mcu it was before disney but you know somehow <laughs> <Right>. it's still <laughs> man yeah somehow somebody gets taken in like uh, when you incorporate a whole company into your own company then you also kind of swallow the talent so. mm-hmm. and favreau is definitely working out great for them and i think he's great i think he's a, a wonderful uh, filmmaker i've loved him all the way back since uh, swingers swingers is such a, a yeah. personal favorite of mine and i hope we can talk about it here one day yeah why haven't we thought to get to swingers and we have thought about chef which we should also do yes that's another that was a great one that's probably honestly i think it's better than anything he's done in uh, quite some time it feels a lot more personal but you know i think he, it's my favorite overall it's it's a warm movie yeah well I he, like chef the other thing is that he didn't direct Swingers. He just wrote it. It was uh, a f- shoot of all people, like some uh, some odd one. I can't remember. Ah, uh, I'm gonna look it up real quick. It was a uh, Doug Lyman. Doug Lyman, Doug yeah. Lyman who just recently, like, his he made a a huge deal with. Uh, he's doing big action films now. He did. Uh, he? <laughs> yeah, he did Edge of Tomorrow. He did uh, the Born. Oh, I- yeah. He did the Born Identity. Edge of Tomorrow is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's just a surprising turn from that intimate kind of you know, uh, um, you know, coming of age story there in your mid twenties to you know Jason <laughs> Bourne. That's like a what is that? A six year difference between those two. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I think Favreau's become so reliable for Disney. This is <laughs> this is like everything like fifteen year old Star Wars fan Calvin wanted anyway, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, all this bounty hunter stuff and. Werner Herzog, it's like a, if I could put the actors I wanted in the movie, you know, I might, this might look a little bit like what I want. It's it's an odd choice, but one I nonetheless embrace. Was he in the trailer? I didn't, I didn't catch him. He was. Ah, oh, shoot. At the, he was at the end, and he has that little line, like, a, something, you know, he's a bounty hunter. Oh, oh, yeah. I was I was very quickly watching these because as I said I procrastinated on this, so I I kind of overlooked it. I'm like, all right, next one. I was already kind of queuing up the next video at that point. <laughs> Even so much that he's like the he's like the reveal at the end. He says his line and Boba turns around or whoever this guy is. So. Right. Well, it's an interesting choice because like the new wave of Star Wars fans who are mostly going to be the ones flocking to this don't give a shit who Werner Herzog is. <laughs> <laughs> they will after this because this will be a, it's a fun role to put him in yeah right it's an interesting one again it was very unexpected when it was announced yeah um and on the other side of the coin we have the uh, rise of the skywalker yeah so uh the trailer started off i thought bad because it's just recycled old film material and you're trying to like like mm. immediately i was reminded i'm like oh so that's what great star wars feels like again i forgot that there's there's a certain grit to the old films look like there's just Mm -hmm. that just entirely doesn't work versus the clean you know smooth view of most modern films today but at the same time i have to admit that this the second half of it which was rise of skywalker focused actually stirred up some interest and like feelings in there like there was some interesting visuals as opposed to like the original teaser which was the lamest thing ever it was like mostly it was so bland because like the main set piece of the teaser was ray in a desert flipping over a tie fighter 
<laughs> which is a cool shot but it's also a nothing shot well it's on a, on a visual perspective i just think it's it's one for so boring like you've got one giant bland color that just mutes the entire screen you know yeah it's and it's not like we haven't had plenty of desert even for a desert environment it's very boring <laughs> Um, I I would say it has awakened feelings in me, especially the Ray bit. Um, I I feel very strongly about Evil Ray. I think you all know that. Yeah, uh, I've I've certainly seen that. You've had. Uh, <laughs> I think your wife has something a little to worry about now. Oh, with Evil Ray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she sure is a vision. That's... <laughs> that that's one thing. It definitely seems like like I even got that. It was what, it was two seconds clips in there. I'm like, oh yeah, that's not yeah. actually happening. The the look on her face was one of total despondence like ghost-like i'm like ah this is a nightmare sequence or something it's so obviously forecasted yeah really hot though (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no but uh it's so obvious because it has a little bit too much cg around her face and the lighting is weird on the lightsaber that it looks dreamlike like the like the moment like luke would like go into the forest and find vader it feels like something that's just uh uh i think we know something that I, I don't want to say too much about the story, what I think it's going to do, but uh, it's, it seems pretty obvious where it's going now. Right, well, even so, like you just said, on a technical facet, it is kind of oddly amateurish to put out like that, like if the lighting of it just seems really off and weird on her face, like they just weren't able to render it properly. Right, because a lightsaber should be something you have down. That should be like the main thing. But, right, I mean, we've I mean, been... She- 40 years we've been doing lightsabers and doing them well. Like, why are we having problems now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, like, taking it to CG. So much could go wrong that uh, it will. Mm-hmm. But, no, I mean, the the trailer looked interesting. Uh, I was excited to see some of the different environments there. There was, like, a tropical jungly one that looked interesting. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I think- yeah, uh, some of the environments look really good. Uh, and that, that lightsaber fight near the end looks really, really nice on the ship. So. Yeah. I was. See how it goes. I have to say, I was stirred up seeing Carrie Fisher again as well. Like the, oh, I was too. Like seeing that, I'm like, all right, maybe I will go see this movie after all. I mean, maybe it'll go a little better than Rogue One's ending. <laughs> we'll, maybe, see. we'll see. I mean, they've been getting better at it, but I don't know if they're doing that. I mean, they have footage. It seems like of her non CG'd. So <laughs> after Rogue One, I thought it was all over. I didn't realize like what is this? Like five, six years later, we'd still be doing the same thing. Or, or four years later. Yeah, hopefully we, we don't let that power slip too much, though, and we just end up making CG monster movies out of all our favorite actors. We'll bring in, like, Vincent Price and Harrison Ford into the <laughs> same film or some weird shit. I think it's the deep fake thing that we're really worried about right now. It's starting to happen that, you know, even dead actors can still kind of live on through a series. Uh, at least here it's romanticized with the fan base, but... Once it's not, you're going to start seeing like a huge, huge, uh, huge flashback on what this, why are you doing this to dead actors? I I have a feeling we'll look back on the Peter Cushing thing and be very uncomfortable with it because I think so. uh, Unlike someone like Carrie Fisher's quick cameo in that one, you know, which was done. First of all, she wasn't dead at the time. Second of all, Mm. uh, it was a very quick cameo, you know, like a single line. Like this is a whole role they wrote in for Grand Moff Tarkin and. Uh, it's not like he was a very beloved Star Wars character that everyone missed or anything. 
Yeah, it's very weird. It's a weird thing to do. Um, so what do you think uh, about the rest of the Disney news? Disney Plus is looking pretty good, too. It is. It is. It's a giant slate, and I might just have to get it solely for the access to the back catalog. I especially want to know if they're going to have any of their old television shows, because I oh, yeah. I grew up on that shit, and I need it again. They said they'd have something like 7,000 episodes of TV at launch or something, so we'll see what's all in there. Mm-hmm. I'm just hoping... I'm, I really want to see some of those old Disney cartoons. You know, I grew up on stuff yeah. like like I need some Darkwing Duck and Tailspin and DuckTales. Everyone will go nuts if they have DuckTales, I promise you. I mean, there's just so much Disney out there that it would have to be your whole DVD collection to have all the things that you could want. So it's really nice. Uh, well, and uh, so expensive. Disney stuff costs so expensive. I had to, <laughs> uh, one thing. What I bought uh, a Blu-ray copy of uh, Fantasia and Fantasia 2000 uh-huh. off eBay a couple months back, and it cost me like forty dollars for used off eBay. My wife and I started going through the Star Wars, and we got two in, and then suddenly they were removed from the service. Now it's a uh, twenty dollars to have. To own it digitally on Amazon. Ooh, no, um, yeah, I can't do that. I I still have my old DVD copies from I, I got them as like a Christmas present as a teenager or something, and they've worked fine for me. I know I really should own them. Like, uh, like I miss having like the big uh, VHS, the Vader head, and all that. But uh, um, I th- I think it'll be nice not to have to anymore. I feel like Star Wars is something that should just be a given that it's it's on a service and you have it, and Marvel too, really. So. Yeah, I think that's I, good for that fan base. I agree, but I, I like that prospect as well. That there are like there are just films that should be available, you know, to stream. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I imagine that with like classics, like we need to get like Wizard of Oz and Casablanca and like maybe the Universal monster movies just available to stream. You know, like because yeah, they're so iconic. Be, I think it's like you have like you know like the. Um, like America goes through and they will fill their library with like old classics. I think those things should just be available to us. I'm, like uh, the significant movies. Why, why would you have to rent them? I'm they surprised. Out there. I'm surprised that the library of Congress doesn't have something like an official service or something set up where you can get all those important films. Or, you know, what if the Academy <laughs> did something like that with the best picture winners of every year? Like you could just watch all of them. I guess there might be some they they might not like as much. I mean, some of those haven't held up, obviously, but in general, like the, just the importance of film history. I think the ones that you see that are so iconic and referenced everywhere, like everyone knows something like seeing in the rain, but how many of them have actually seen it? Right, and like a Criterion and Disney, I feel like that's a good like one two for me. Is like the services I'll be paying for for a long time. Right. Um, uh, just like Criterion too, they also announced that they're doing extras behind all the a lot of the content on here. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's a, a great move for them as well. It's uh, I love the way that streaming is evolving and becoming its own uh, different thing. And eventually, I'm still convinced that TV, especially you know, like cable, is going to go away soon enough here, especially with the advent of internet. The fact that I'm watching, um, you know, political debates and whatnot uh, through you know YouTube as opposed to cable, you know, I think that's a big signifier of the way things are changing. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of life left in it. Uh, it is interesting that they want to go uh, once a week with the online service. Uh, I don't know if Netflix realized that they don't have to put it all out at once. So. I think Netflix did it to be something very different, and it did. It did change things, I think, radically in a way, and it made way for um, more uh, limited series stuff runs, like what you've got. Like, yeah. I think the most immediate example I think of is House on Haunted Hill. Like, that's mm. if you did that as a weekly thing, I I don't think you would watch it as well. You want to look at it as an extended, you know, movie effectively there, and that's what those I are. Think, 
I think their shows also aren't long enough usually. Like a, they take about two and a half, three hours in total if you just binge them. Unless it's like a Strange Things or a, or this new Star Wars show, then then you could probably put it to weekly. Mm-hmm. But there there are some shows they make. You know, they they make like a lot of uh, some some sitcomy shows and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that you could definitely do on a weekly basis, like regular. Uh, the fact that it's just a blanket drop everything at once, I agree, may not necessarily be great for netflix and i think disney's picking up on that but uh you know at the same time they might be looking away from this new streaming format that netflix has kind of pioneered i feel like all this news was just dropped on us almost as a consequence of us hearing a little bit too much of disney and sony over spider-man yeah well that's a man we still have more to talk about (laughs) you were kidding a lot of no they dropped everything on us they want us to talk about this stuff but we also need to talk about this other thing yeah, so Disney and Sony here. Uh, big thing is that it, you know the contract with them has expired after uh, I think what six appearances I think was the the number. Correct me if mm-hmm. I'm wrong, but um, and now uh, so or Disney tried to strong arm their way into a ridiculous amount more money in the movies, and Sony just said no. Reportedly, they wanted about fifty percent of profits, but they're as not. A, it's not their character; they don't own the license. Fifty so. percent, as opposed to the five percent they're currently making. That is yeah. <laughs> a ten times increase. It's ridiculous. We should say, uh, "Far from Home" is the most successful Sony branded movie of all time, but it doesn't mean that um, it doesn't mean that they could take on the uh, character. And I feel like. Disney kind of designed Far From Home. It's time for a, my conspiracy theory, by the way. Are you ready for it? <laughs> all right, all right, let me hear. All right, I feel like they put Spider-Man in a place where he had to become the most crucial Avenger and where he had to be, like, the cornerstone of all of Marvel so that the fan reaction would be so upset if uh, they knew Sony was going to come and take the property back. So they designed it in such a way where it had too much momentum and too much place in the MCU to really remove it. I think that's a pretty valid uh, theory. Uh, One thing I do want to point out is that uh, Sony bankrolls the entire films here. That's that's another kind of shitty aspect of this that's kind of not overlooked. Like, the cost to make is Homecoming, or not Homecoming, but uh, Far From Home, both of them actually, is all Sony's money. They're the one punching it in there, and then Disney just basically comes in with all their creative stuff and makes the movie itself. But all the financial burden is on sony so that's another kind of shitty aspect of this where you see that disney is totally trying to extort and exploit uh sony the other problem is uh, i mean we have a little a little variation but i think we both agree that um into the spider-verse is the best thing since the raimi trilogy so i totally agree with that Uh, i have not watched far from home still uh so i can't comment so much on that but definitely over homecoming in terms of tom holland spider-man in general it's not that he's bad (laughs) or anything it's just that he's very gimped by his connection to the mcu here he's not spider-man as a character he's spider-man as an avenger and i wonder uh, yeah i've always wondered about how they've presented him because they've always (laughs) they've really forced him in like spider-man as i knew him was never an avenger or part of like a marvel series with interconnected characters because he has his own amazing rogue gallery that works perfectly well just having 
an independent Spider-Man. Well, even when he was part of, you know, Avengers and, like, comics and stuff, the thing is, is that you still have all of the characteristics of Spider-Man as a kid. Like, the Raimi films, what they especially tap into that I don't think any of the sp- other ones, short of potentially uh, Into the Spider-Verse, have really tapped into is this sense of heroic responsibility. The famous quote from the Spider-Man series is, tells you all you need to know there, and the fact that, uh, you know, the MCU Spider-Man has nothing even close to equivalent to that really tells you all you need to know. Yeah, and I think that about sums up uh, our feelings on Spider-Man. I thought it was necessary because of everything it really forces into the um, MCU, but uh, now I don't know why you'd watch Far From Home. <laughs> uh, what's it for? Yeah, I don't know. Overall, I actually I don't see the loss of Spider-Man as that big a deal. Again, I don't think he's, no. he's not contributing a whole lot to the MCU as a whole. He's not being re- fully realized as a character here, and I don't think Sony really loses that much in losing him. You know, it's just one property, and they still get to make Spider-Man properties if they want. They have a new thing. Like, Venom was very successful. They can go forward and do something with that, and people yeah. will still go see it. It's, I mean, it's not going to be seen in MCU numbers, but it's definitely going to make them money. They're not really losing something. Disney's losing anything here, really. And even then, it's only, like, a minor dent in their thing. It just throws off their MCU plan a bit. And it's like they held on for five movies without making him really a crucial part of the story. And then uh, as soon as they were about to lose it, they really forced everything in. Well, it's stuff like one of those movies that counts is Endgame. And what did he do in that movie? <laughs> Nothing, really. He, um, I think you have something for me, Parker, right? I, that's all I remember. Yep. Uh, it's just he carries the, the gauntlet around for a little bit. That's it. And then he gives it to Captain Marvel. She She does some stuff. That's all I remember. Yep. So, Disney not really making good use of Spider-Man anyway. Might as well let him go. Yeah, might as well lose it if you're not going to use it. Um, uh, More transition, but um, we're looking into a new way to do the box office here. Yeah, so uh, we, I think we've grown a little tired of talking about the Lion King over and over again, and we're ready to uh, talk about different films. So I think our goal here is to highlight what's new and changing in the box office uh, instead of just running down the numbers each week. Yeah. Uh, We're still going to look at things that are making big movements, things that are making news especially, but this will also loosen us up. So I see a lot at festivals that kind of premiere at like 30, 40 often. So I don't always want to be stuck in like a... A top ten where uh, seven of them we don't want to talk about every week. Right, well, because we've talked about those same seven for like yeah, three exactly. weeks, you know, and it's often the same case, and it's going to be the case here for a while, and I think we're, we've we both grown, or we both feel like the format needs a bit of a change, and so we're going to try something different for a little while. Maybe around November we'll have ten that we'll talk about, but we're going to present it in a different way. We're, we're not skipping things that... Uh, there's just too many movies we're not going to see because we don't care. Yeah, well, it's also just... It, it feeds more into our casual conversation style of podcasting here, which I think is what we want to achieve. Again, it's... Like, you can go back and see we had... You know, we've we've been trying to break free of the shackles of strict formatting ever since the first couple podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're doing this pretty freeform anyway, and it's more fun to kind of just talk about what we want. Like, uh, just go to Box Office Mojo every week and follow along with us. That'll work. Yeah. All right. uh, So let's get into it, Calvin. All right. So from where do you go Box Office to where do you go Bernadette? uh, And where do you go Annapurna? Uh, They're coming back now. It looks like they've resolved about $200 in debt. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, so this was the the one I also did not know much about. <laughs> okay, that's fine. But uh, um, 
what's her name? Uh, Megan something, whoever owns the Annapurna. Her father went in and resolved all their debts. So uh, they're not going to be looking at any more loans, but they're going to look at people to kind of finance some new stuff for them. It's not uh, dead in the water. Um, it would have been a shame because uh, they put out some interesting stuff like uh, if Beale Street could talk, although they, I don't think they're, they've done a good job at distributing it. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like uh, I'm looking over the article again. We got a couple of things like uh, Vice and Sister Brothers and Destroyer. They also did. Yeah, which all bombed. So I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the long term prospect is here. They, they get really interesting stuff and then they don't open it. Um, they open it wide right away instead of leading in, so it could generate a little bit of buzz. Um, they'll have to change a few things. And then uh, in terms of uh, new stuff here, we in the box office, what we have. Uh, Ready or not, number six here. Uh, it's a new horror movie, and I'm enjoying this uh, things where all of our movies are uh, children's games. <laughs> we had Tag last year. Oh, yeah, uh, and people seem to really enjoy Tag. Yeah, I, I like Tag. It's about a, it's about some men from Spokane, by the way. It's about some Washington guys who decide to play Tag during their wedding. Uh, this is also about kind of a wedding story built into family tradition. Uh it looks okay. I'm, I'm going to see it this week. Uh, Laura said it's great. Yeah, I've been hearing good things. The reviews look pretty good on it. And again, just, you know, it's a great time for horror movies in this decade, I think. You know, things have really blossomed for them. I think the other great thing about doing it this way is we could kind of break into some streaming news because uh, half the good releases now are on streaming, and it will kind of go that way looking at, like, Scorsese coming out. Uh, it won't all be box office news. Mm-hmm. Because it's just been announced that uh, Scorsese's only doing 250 theaters, so that wouldn't make our top 10, so why would we justify doing a box office? Yeah, I believe the the release dates are listed are November 1st for theater runs, and then about a month later on the 27th, you get it on Netflix for The Irishman. So it's getting an extra week that then Roma had, which is really great. They're giving it a little more time. I think I'm, I'm guessing because it's like going to have to be the requirement for it to get any kind of Oscar attention, truly. Yeah, it, I think so, um, and it's still not going to make the three-month requirement to make like AMC and Regal releases, which is just batshit crazy, and they gotta change with the time soon. Yeah, well, as the way things are going, I think uh, people like Netflix, they're trying to meet them halfway by coming in and mm-hmm. doing, um, you know, more theatrical releases and, you know, doing more of that, but I don't know if the the theaters are going to meet the other half. Oh, no, they're not going to be allowed to show it at anything other than independent theaters, just like Roma, so that's a that's a shame again, but... I'll be checking. Right. I'll be seeing it, though. I'm, I'm sure my local theater here is going to be check, you know, playing it, and I'll definitely go see it as soon as I can. But our, our new release is uh, Mindhunter, the second season of the David Fincher picture, uh, or the David Fincher series that uh, Tyler has a great review up on the side of. Yeah, uh, it's a fantastic review. It's really getting a lot of attention lately, and you know, it seems to be some of uh, everyone's here's favorite work of his. Um, I like Mindhunter a lot because it goes into the psychology of the killers. I don't like a lot of the serial killer stuff where it's like profiling them as kids, but this time they get to like sit down with people. And, uh, and this season we get to see Manson, which is really cool. Uh, same guy that played him in... Uh, once Upon a Time in Hollywood, by the way. It's interesting because in, in Hollywood, he plays the younger Manson for just like a single scene, which you can basically mm-hmm. just see in the trailer. And then in Mindhunter, he's playing the older, I believe in prison Manson. I don't know. I, I've not watched the show myself, but <laughs> that's my understanding. 
it's funny he walks out and the guys are like this guy's really short um he's a uh, he's standing there and he he you know he's not like a mountain of a man he's kind of reduced and feeble and older um but but he gives them some uh he he actually gets to sit down and have a conversation he sounds and looks like manson uh really uh transformative stuff that uh, i think it's worth watching a series for I always kind of wonder with roles like that, like how far you can disappear into the the mind of a depraved person you're portraying without kind of going too far and not being able to come back out. Yeah, I like it because uh, the main character here, Holden, he tries to give him sunglasses. <laughs> Manson's like, I'd like your shades. He's like, fine, uh, you're Manson, you could have them. <laughs> I, I, I feel like actual uh, investigation would be a little bit um, uh, more formal these days, but uh, this is really... Right at the time where they're like coining the phrase "serial killer" in the show, so uh, it's a it's a fun point of entry for um, anyone who likes these crime shows. Well, like you said, you know Manson was also a very weird dude. All the stuff he did was totally insane and, and batshit, and very media drawing in because of that. Because it was so odd, he's he's terrifying in a way you can't understand effectively. And I think it's more terrifying for us because he wasn't the killer, but he had enough control to make other people do it. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that he, uh, uh, in all of those, what we call the Manson murders, he did not kill anyone. He did uh, attempt to kill one person, right. but he was not successful. <laughs> but it makes us think something like everyone might have the capacity if they were formed around it to become a murderer, which is, a, I think, the scary thing about Manson and his crew. Yeah, uh, one thing I, I guess I want to say as well, especially within the wake of all this Manson stuff, this has got to be a larger tangent than I thought it would, but um, yeah. between that and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, I think there's probably a lot of people out there who don't actually know what happened with Manson and the murders and everything and how pivotal all of that stuff was to shifting our entire culture in 1969. I sent on a, a pretty good podcast. What was it called? Uh, you Need to Remember yeah, This, you, I think? You Must Remember This. Uh, that was the one you showed me and I checked out and that gave me a great insight. It was a 12-part series on the Manson murders and like the whole history of him and all the people involved and what happened and all that. Uh, I guess we'll, I guess we're plugging them now. Not that they need yeah. our attention, but it, and it's very fantastic. And I highly implore anyone, especially for once upon a time in Hollywood, because if you don't really have that, uh, already that, that cultural understanding of what happened in the late sixties that kind of shifted everything to a much more cynical period in our, in our history, then I don't think you'll, mm really understand what the film is aiming to do by depicting that time period in that specific moment. Yeah, I think I think you'll be better off with like Mindhunter or something that lays it all out, but uh, for once upon a time, I think you need some background reading. Yeah. Um, I read uh, Joan Didion's uh, The White Album this last week, which also gave me some more background on how Hollywood and California were during that time. Right, well, because that was, again, that was The White Album was a big player in the the Manson murders as well. It's very interesting, you know, if uh, you are into that kind of thing. If you are, you, you may already, in fact, know everything about it. <laughs> Other than that, uh, our I guess we'll always run down our top box office anyway, because we have o Overcomer at 3, which is an inspirational story. Uh, mm -hmm. Two, we have The Good Boys, which is the only the second original film to reach uh, number one in the year. Yeah, which is, is kind of surprising, but hopefully we'll see more of that. Uh, number one is considerably less original. 
Yeah, Angel Has Fallen is the third of the uh, Gerard Butler Bourne trilogy. I don't know what this is. I didn't. I didn't know until recently when I learned about this film that this was a series. I only remember yeah. the first, the Olympus Has Fallen. Uh, I think what what's the other one? It's like Lon- London. London Has Fallen. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So what and is now? Angel Has Fallen. I hear this is the good one. So maybe. Is it, we'll I don't see. know. Let's take a look at these uh, numbers here. I mean, they're not as bad as I thought they'd be for rating-wise, so maybe there is something to this, but... Yeah, but $21 million first week isn't isn't really burning the charts either, because it... Uh, yeah. I don't know what the budget could be, but it's not $21 million. I don't know. I have very little... Oh, here we go. The IMDb estimates the budget's at $40 million, so... Okay. <laughs> so about double its opening weekend. It'll probably go down about 50%. Yeah, it might make it back by video. We'll see. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I don't even understand this series necessarily. Like I get the first <laughs> one that you know the the president's being attacked or whatever, but apparently it's the same president here. What is this angel yeah. now? Is this, <laughs> is this in Los Angeles? I'm guessing this from the title, since apparently they're all location based. You had Olympus, which translates to the White House. I can't tell. Like from the poster, it either looks like White House or. Maybe it's like a L.A. location. We, we, I can't really tell. Uh, I mean, it doesn't say anything about being... Attempt. He, he's being framed know. for an assassination attempt on the president, it looks like. So it's a... Okay. It's a kind of Hitchcockian, um, you know, wrong man scenario. Yeah, a little bit sniper, a little bit Hitchcockian. Uh, uh, Gerard Butler, is he having a comeback? I, I liked uh, the Lighthouse movie because I liked Lighthouses. What's it called? The Keeper? Uh, not the, not the Lighthouse. Year. Not the Lighthouse. The other Lighthouse movie this year with Gerard Butler. Where they, the Vanishing. Where they're also vanishing. <laughs> it, it was originally called The Keeper. Now it's called The Vanishing. Um, I'm very enthusiastic about Lighthouses, but not so much Gerard Butler. He did a Geostorm last year. Oh, well, you know, maybe not then. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I have I don't have much to say other than that. Uh, that'll probably be the last time we talk about Angel Has Fallen, I think. Yeah, that's the nice thing of our new format is we don't have to talk about this for the next month. And we could just move on to what we really want to talk about, which is our uh, featured film this week, which I'm uh, actually very excited to talk about. Yeah, um, we're talking about L.A. Confidential. Yes, so this was... Um, one of the very interesting neo-noirs. I remember watching the first time it kind of being just really blown away by how impressive it is on a story level in particular. It's if it unfolds in an amazingly, you know, kind of perfect way with all the pieces coming together. Uh, well, I think I know. I don't know if everyone knows. How would you define neo-noir? Okay, yeah, I guess that's a good way to put it. So, obviously, film noir, you know, it's a kind of genre style back from the 1940s and 50s that was all black and white and, you know, lots of detectives and very, you know, grungy settings, dark lighting, all that stuff. We got a couple pieces about it on the site to check out. But neo-noir really kind of picked up more in the early 70s. You got stuff like uh, Chinatown, The Long Goodbye, and um, Farewell, uh, My Lovely, which all kind of revived from the same kind of material but instead of having the restrictions of the the hollywood Hayes code at the time which basically prevented the depiction of violence and boo you know like uh, uh drug drugs and uh sex mm-hmm. and all the appealing stuff that really you know war films were kind of built around <laughs> and the original like dime novels from like dashiell hammett and uh Raymond Chandler that inspired stuff like the big sleep and um farewell my lovely as i mentioned 
<clears throat> anyway, in the 70s, okay. they kind of revived that, but with the ability to portray it all in that kind of new, cynical 70s environment, kind of like we referenced before in the wake of all the 60s stuff. I think that's a really good de- definition to it, because I always, like, more... Uh, took it as like visual code like neo-noir would be like the more neon noir uh, and a more art deco looking noir that with modern elements but i think that's more a technical uh, well, uh description of what happened to make that happen there is a bit of both there um you know definitely because noir was not only a distinctive style in theme and you know content but also visually because again of the the kind of physical limitations of you know budgetary so they made everything very dark with lighting wise to kind of disguise the uh, lackluster productions so to speak and we had a very expressionist style that way right like uh well noir literally literally from french just blackness or like yeah. a, or a dark color right and so. it's supposed to mean it, it kind of reflects both the darkness of the film's look themselves and the content because a big big facet of noirs is that they're very cynical in the wake of world war ii kind of coming out of that and all the midst of that going on that's what really triggered that and then the same thing in response in the 70s that's where that revival kind of came up in the wake of vietnam and like the mass serial killings and all of the you know rejection of free love essentially and that's why in the 70s it really picked up again and it's kind of continued on throughout like you know again i mentioned like chinatown's a big highlight but another one's like blade runners and off mentioned big neo-noir sci-fi mm-hmm. and it's got like the neon aspect going on with it like you mentioned and i think one of the other big ones here is la confidential which didn't come till the 90s here but it was from a, a novel written from um Oh, I'm blanking already. I should have had this note. Uh, James James Elroy. Elroy. Yeah, I always want to say Elmore Leonard for some reason. No, it's no, the, yeah, I get it. It's the Elroy that throws me off. No worries. And it is based in the 50s, so we do get that post-war feeling. Right, well, that's the great thing, I think, about it, is that that's why it works as this perfect neo-noir homage, because it's set in Hollywood about Hollywood and the corruption that's going on there. So we are thrown right into the, the zeitgeist of the stars and everything and the politics of, you know, studio antics, even though it is largely a police procedural kind of contained to a murder mystery story. <laughs> but you do have the nice lavish background, especially with all the um, fleur-de-lis stuff with all the, the cut, you know, uh, horror stars. So we get name drops like Lana Turner and Veronica mm-hmm. Lake and Rita Hayworth. And they are uh, put against the background that could only happen within L.A. where uh, it's, it's all like they want to get on this show, Badge of Honor, right? And right. They're, they're like men of honor, effectively, and they're trying to live into something that's just a television concept. Well, I think it's interesting. Again, everything's got like a parallel. Like Badge of Honor is effectively uh, the equivalent of Dragnet back from the 50s there mm-hmm. and doing that. And so that's where they have... You know, like uh, Kevin Spacey's character, he's the consultant on there. Uh, I guess that's that's what we should go over as well here. Is that we the the great thing I think about it structurally is that you've got these three very well defined and distinct and opposing characters who all come together in their plot lines and and mix to one big conspiracy going on in the form of Guy Pierce, Russell Crowe, and Kevin Spacey. Yeah, it's nice because they go in and you get their introductions on the screen like you get their letters their names spelt out right and in the typewriter you know those are yeah in the typewriter font you know those are going to be the plot lines because of that well it, it does a really good job of defining their characters those moments well one thing as well i'll say is that again another staple of noir is like you've got lots of voiceover stuff would you have a little bit here with danny devito's uh uh kind of 
shoddy newspaper guy is a Oh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Gossip Magazine. He's a Gossip Magazine columnist. Mm-hmm. And it's nice because the framing device works in-universe. So it's even though it's uh, kind of only occasional that it pops up, it makes sense for the story-wise. And, so, and he writes like a failed noir novelist anyway. Mm-hmm. So. It kind of feels like that uh, in a way with his kind of pulpy uh, way of addressing things. But w- with each character, we do get a very distinct feeling of what they is. So we get like Russell Crowe's introduction as Bud White, and he's obviously a very physical kind of like like brutish guy with uh not, maybe not as much brains as he has brawn but he's very passionate about what he does and what he's defending he's a he's a advocator against women's violence and so that's kind of mm-hmm. how he's introduced and he beats the crap out of a you know wife beater <laughs> and leaves him there and being caught by the cops <laughs> it's really amazing how he goes about it too because he's such a such an advocate for women and he just like pulls the guy out on what is it christmas eve and he's mm-hmm. Uh, just like really ruining their night, but uh, getting vengeance where it's needed, and the wives always look like, "Oh, thank you for coming." <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, I think he does a really good job. Russell Crowe plays a really great brute like that, and you know, again, it works in conjunction to the other characters going on. Like then you've got uh, Kevin Spacey's character, you know, Jack Vincennes, who is such an egotistical character. Now, in retrospect, I feel like only someone like Kevin Spacey could play him. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it's not a surprise for us that uh, Kevin Spacey would fail to have actual honor and that he would pull it off in a movie. Yeah, well, and, and this thing is that watching this, uh, I want to talk about this, I think, a bit at length with him, but I think this is one of his best performances. He's very, He's got a very subtle performance here. There's a scene at one point in a bar where he's kind of looking over the money he just got paid off with because he's kind of oh, a yeah. sleazy cop, and he just has, he stares in the mirror with this absolute fantastic look of self-loathing it's it's really incredible how much he his character kind of hates himself in the film i mean you'd really have to hate yourself that much as a person yeah i think and so again it's this great balance of his character because he's very uh self self-important about things but also you know very you know self-serving until he kind of reaches this arc when he when he, there's a personal conflict of things where he feels a certain responsibility for something which I think is kind of the opposite of real-life Kevin Spacey. And I feel like he always has the theatrical way about him, that he has perfect line delivery no matter what he's saying. No, he's, again, it's a, he's a phenomenal actor, and we're all very disappointed that he's a piece of shit in person. <laughs> <laughs> no surprises, but... Uh, I'm just getting, I mean, I'm getting this all out now, all of this Spacey bashing, so we can actually praise him later on, you know? Yeah, uh, I figured it would uh, be worth looking at, especially like when I when I logged the review. Right, I was like, well, I I just think it's uh, you know I have to look at Spacey first. I have to think about it and reevaluate. And it hasn't brought the movie down at all. But uh, but I could see some some weirdness in here. Oh yeah, it's funny because I thought about it when I when I read that when you logged it on Letterboxd. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess Kevin Spacey does use his power as a figure in Hollywood to lure an up and coming. <laughs> Uh, young gay actor to do some sexual favors that he really doesn't want to and ultimately pays the price for it. That's uh, yeah. no parallels to real life there. <laughs> no, um, and uh, that was like the that was like the just if you if you look me up on the letterbox you'll find out what it is. But uh, under Calvin Kemp, uh, more like more broadly, it speaks like wrong about like Hollywood and uh, this movie's really about how men come into and maintain power over other people. Right, and that's kind of the big plot of it and what everything leads to. But before that, we've got the introduction of Guy Pierce's character as well, who is, I think, my favorite of it. Um, 
he's like the the diametric opposite of Bud in this film is uh, Ed Eggsley, and he's just this pristine image of a good, uh, honorable cop who's doing everything in his power to obey the law and also move up the ranks in excellence at the same time. And Pierce definitely has this this innocence to him that's really great. This very pristine boyish look that I think really adds to that. It's easy to tell with you if who your favorite character will be if they wear glasses. I, <laughs> I feel like I could I feel like I could map it out. I think uh, I think that's I feel like Exley is such a I feel like he is the honorable character there. He, what were you gonna say? He is. I, I I have to say with that I think that's the case. And I think that's also the case for for my fiance, that any characters that remind her of me, just she's automatically more attracted to it. Like you're you had a kind of sexual awakening with Ray in the trailer there. She she also had this new kind of last night when we were watching LA Confidential, this profound revelation of sexual attractiveness to Guy Pierce. <laughs> and Guy Pierce is uh, is very honorable here. He's upstanding against like the face of what the rest of the cops are doing. Well, it's interesting because he has a, a conflict as well because he's trying to live up to the reputation of his father, who was also a very mm. noteworthy cop in the force here, and he's you know really making leaps and bounds in terms of you know progress as this youthful thing that really none of the other people in the police because the police force here is kind of such a boys club and you really get the sense of that in the beginning when they go into their black christmas thing or bloody christmas is what they call it um where they beat up a bunch of mexicans they bring in because they think they you know beat one of the the other cops in there and it becomes this whole scandal and Exley just handles it like such a great like what James Cromwell's character Dudley he he says uh, you know as a politician his skills exceed even my own. And it is funny because uh, when the reporters get there, they're all they want to report on is a quiet night with the LAPD, right? The right. Silent night with the LAPD, and they want to find the. Uh, you see how interconnected the um, media and how on the police uh, payroll they are, because they're completely controlled by what the cops want to do. And then you have that fight break out. <laughs> well, and then you can't pass up, like, that's that's prime news there. That's some front-page stuff that's going to get lots of, you know, papers sold. Of course you're going to, you know, report on that stuff. And it's the same thing. It's like, are they, or is the media there no better than, you know, the, uh, you know, gossip magazine that Dane DeVito's running, who's, you know, intentionally creating drug busts? That's one moment, I guess, go back to Spacey's character with his introduction, where he, they make, like, this big event of busting these kids for pot that they essentially are (laughs) practically framing them for like at this point in the 90s you know we understand that charges of marijuana possession are like the most bullshit thing and so yeah it doesn't really mean anything to have marijuana i mean now the government sells it to us what does it tell you right well it's the is the idea even in the 90s like i think throughout the entire time it's been quote-unquote illegal we've understood that this is really bullshit and so and so that's the idea is that it it is such a phony crime and the way they frame that there is like it's just this publicity stunt for them where jack goes in makes they make this big thing they got these giant floodlights shining in as they're busting them and they they pose in front of the the hollywood premiere was it the hollywood premiere bust or whatever they call it you know they're only going in there for the shot too they're not doing it because it's a justice or or a criminal justice thing they have to do it's just because they want the shot in front of the hollywood theater right or the it's just for the publicity of it and so it's just phony thing and that's again it's a great uh you know moniker of uh jack's character Mm -hmm. absolutely 
but yeah, I think uh, the the plot itself is what's uh, kind of really interesting and uh, incredible about it, and I think that really goes back to uh, Elroy's novel, James Elroy. I almost did it again, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's fine. Because the thing is, is from what I understand, I, I've not yet to sit down and read the novel. I want to, but it's a huge book. It's a huge novel that mm-hmm. is condensed into this like two hour 20 minute film which is kind of an incredible feat on its own i think the screenwriting that curtis hansen did to do it i believe he won an oscar for it for this one yeah and and, and it's incredible i just like being i like being in this world too like uh well one of my favorite games is la noir which is just this movie yeah oh and that's effectively uh what it is you know and, and both in the sense that both films take a lot of influence from classic noirs i was seeing a lot of that and i've seen lots of uh discussions of curtis hansen you know the director talking about it he's got a great discussion on uh, a humphrey bogart film called in lonely place on one of the criterion uh releases and you know you can see that influence a lot everywhere especially with the uh, kind of the presence of other celebrities here you got your you know lana turner stuff with uh, postman always rings twice and gilda you know with rita hayworth and stuff like that but this definitely harkens back more to the the hollywood hollywood stuff of noirs like your sunset boulevards and your inner lonely places like i mentioned and also i've noticed on this time he really decorates the background with stuff there's a marquee that's playing the bad and the beautiful which is another very cynical mm-hmm. uh, hollywood screenwriter story yeah yeah i noticed that one specifically it stood out um i like this because it takes place in the world that those movies came out in mm-hmm. so it it exists within the universe of uh the actual non-neo-noir movies, the noir movies. Right, and they and they find a way to incorporate them, you know, the characters, the, the celebrities, in a way that works, again, especially through Fleur de Lis. But I think the best moment, you might agree with me here as well, is that there's a moment in the bar with Jack and uh, uh, Ed together, and they're they're grilling one of the the guys at the bar, and, and he thinks that, and Ed thinks that one of the, the the girl he's with is a whore cut to look like Lana Turner. Mm. And he starts yeah. bad mouthing her, <laughs> and, and his... it's funny because they're always like she's cut to look like her. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing is that he thinks that because he's involved somehow with Flirtily, but and and you can see if you're watching Kevin Spacey throughout it, he's already like he knows going into the scenario that it's actually <laughs> Lana Turner, like it's, a, it's right. the character of Lana Turner there, and he's a, losing it because he knows Ed's going to make a damn fool of himself. <laughs> and he's taking a little bit of amusement in it too that he's going to make this mistake it's hilarious it's, it's a hilarious moment a really great i think moment of levity in the film and ed gets and, and it shows ed's kind of still lack of experience i think that's a lot of things that his character kind of struggles with throughout the film is it attempts to prove himself and you can see that like that desire mm-hmm. to especially like when he first aims to take on the night owl case he rushes to grab the phone when there's the murder you know that comes out news of yeah and he wants to be upstanding but uh he's a little bit too earnest to really understand like the social cues of that situation right well he's not willing to uh kind of conform to the the dastardly ways in which the police force work until we kind of work up our (laughs) way to the end there and i think there's lots of great examples of that one of one of the best ones i think in terms of showcasing his naivete is when they go to um find the 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 black guys who they were being framed uh, who escaped in the, into the hotel uh oh but i think i wrote down the name of the hotel here somewhere the bunker hill bunker hill hotel is what it was called and mm. um how they end up slaughtering all of them 
um, you know, because of a false move that first sets off the, the amateur guy that Eggsley brings along with him. And that's where he gets his nickname. You know, he's got the, the shotgun Ed, Ed nickname they give him afterwards. But he's really, you know, uh, he shows this really great performance uh, Guy Pierce does in this absolute shock of his actions here. Like, he's very horrified the fact that he's murdered all of these, uh, you know, y- young black men, I would say. That he's become one of them. Effectively, that he's become violent. And one of my other favorite things about that that I think... Uh, may get overlooked in some discussions of LA Confidential is that there's a really great direction of action sequences in the film. They're very good. Uh, the, the hotel shootout in particular is really great because uh, it sets up the environment perfectly as you come in. You've got them walking through the hallway first. You see all of it before the shootout's going to happen. And even as they're walking up to the door, you hear the elevator go off. There's a very distinct addition of the elevator sound and it opening, you know, and we see that there. So we, we've established that the elevator exists within this scenario. So we know once we're running down the hallway back chasing, you know, the, the runaway uh, victim there, that, you know, we it- know where it's going to end up at. It has good action patterning and a great context for environment, and it works really well in that sense. Yeah, and especially once we get to the end of the film, the climax has a really, really great shootout that's, again, been a very well-established environment since the very beginning of the film. We often go back to this the Victory Motel here. We see it throughout as an important you know, set piece of the entire film, and so... It's very well established by the time we get to the shootout. We're very familiar with the environment, so we understand it and how it all has to play out and how surrounded they end up being kind of in the end. It's really true, because a lot of times when you're layering something like this, you feel like it goes off and it's a few different stories. But here it feels like a cohesive whole where uh, even if you're off with another guy, he might go back to the same environment another guy was in. And it all kind of doubles up into a... More of a, what literature would look like than a movie necessarily. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why I think it's a it's a terrific translation of the material here. It feels like a movie, but it it plays out so perfectly like a novel. Again, especially in the convergence of the plot points, how they all come together. There's you know Jack's story with all of the the porn stuff going on there, and how that plays into the the night owl stuff, which is what um, you know Exley is working on, and how that goes on with all the the black guys who are being framed, and then all of Bud's stuff, which involves around uh, Buzz Meeks, which is the guy who was with you know uh, Kim Basinger's character, and how that plays in with his old partner, and how all of those stories combine together in a really great revelation of the the mastery behind all of that. And I think. It's a story about men in power, but the women play off pretty well, too. Yeah. Uh, Kim Bassinger, she's great in it, and she plays a whore cut to look like Veronica Lake, who did, you know, mm. a series of important awards on her own, mostly with Alan Ladd, uh, stuff like This Gun for Hire and The Glass Key and The Blue Dahlia. Those are the big ones. Um, mm. And she looks a lot like her. They even play a scene from This Gun for Hire at one point when she's... Uh, with a man at one of the points in the film, so you can see, like, they, they explicitly kind of compare the two in a really good moment. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff, and it's a good throwback to a lot of noir. Um, I'm not sure I have a ton else on it. Uh, I think one thing I want to talk about uh, before we kind of wrap up here is, again, I, I was kind of leading up to this, and I think there's a fitting place to put it kind of at the end here, is uh, talking about a little bit more about James Cromwell, who we learn in a really great revelatory moment with... Kevin Spacey's character that he is really orchestrating all of the stuff going on here. He just like in this shocking moment, he turns around, he shoots uh, Kevin Spacey. 
It is a it's a great scene, um, and it is well set up in the environment, like we were saying. Well, it's, and it just comes out of nowhere, and it's a sudden realization of how he's been pulling the strings as the the chief of police this whole time, and you know it's a he becomes a very terrifying presence in the film, and Spacey has a really really great death scene there. It just uh, he's got this really great ability to have this dead look in his eyes. He's just absent, and the camera holds on it for a long time. It becomes very unnerving. Yeah, and and like we're saying, you could read something true about that when it happens to Spacey. So it's right. Nice. And then, uh, you know, so the, the kind of revelation at the end when, you know, they have the shootout and he survives it, essentially, and the cops, the, the actual starts, cops start coming, and mm. Exley has to make that decision as to whether he's going to obey the law and allow him to go free and probably get away with it because, you know, he's the chief of police and nobody's going to believe that he was, you know, masterminding things like this or if he's going to take the yeah. the route of justice that uh, someone like Bud usually does and kill him there himself, even though it's kind of against his moral plane. And I think there's that kind of revelation. It's an interesting character arc for him there because he has to, you know, he learns that... Uh, you know, through the corruption of the the police force there, that justice isn't always inherent to the law. Yeah, uh, I feel like I like where it ends up going. I I do want to read the novel after this. Yeah, I think that it'll be an even more uh, interesting thing to do. I, I can, I'm curious to know how that's going to recontextualize my understanding of the film, but the film is nigh flawless. I think uh, it's sometimes a little not subtle in places like, like yeah, yeah. uh whereas obvious. whereas you know noir films they really you know fly off of their very coded and double entendre laden dialogue and the kind of gritty atmosphere of the films like it does feel very put out there for you with la confidential i think is the only thing it, it does feel a lot more commercial i'll say but in a still very satisfying and artistic way yeah, I mean, I think that's like a neo noir part of it, right? It's just it's glossy, whereas something like Chinatown still has maintains the grit, you know. Yeah, it's very close to its gossip Maggie kind of influences here. Mm-hmm. It's pulpy gossip Maggie influences. It's it's not as clever as some of the black and whites, right? Or just it's it's a little too polished. Like I said, I think is the the case here, and there's sometimes like a couple times where they like. Like show you back an image of somebody saying something like when we see the the girl who was being cut to look like Rita Hayworth in the morgue they mm-hmm. they show like a quick clip of her again just in case we forgot that's who that was and there's, yeah. there's like a couple moments like that that are like where you don't trust the audience to remember things where I'm like ah I mean I, I wish it wouldn't do stuff like that well, uh, I think that's a pretty good place to leave it here. Yeah, I think so. It's a absolutely phenomenal again, neo noir, one of my favorites, and very happy we get to talk about it here and highlight again one of my favorite yeah. little uh, genres to talk about. I'm glad we found a good police story to talk about. Yeah, I guess that's that's the way to look at it because we did originally intend to talk about police story, but when your loathe, uh, your your hatred of Jackie Chan came out, I think we needed to shift to a, a different police story. <laughs> 